Coming to you from Jonesboro, Tennessee, the storytelling capital of the world, and broadcasting from the historic McKinney Center, it's Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio show, and I'm your host, Jules Corrier. And I'm your host, Rochelle Conley, and tonight we're telling some of my favorite stories, stories that seem to sum up this northeast part of Tennessee. I'm talking about stories of good neighbors, and we have plenty of them right here. I think that's the reason this region is growing so much. People come to visit and discover how neighborly everyone is. And before long, the visitors want to be residents. That's how I got here. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I've been here my whole life. And the thing is, we're not that afraid of our hometown losing its character because the new neighbors that have moved here have become good neighbors too. It's sort of contagious. <laughs> it really is. And we've got some <laughs> musical guests with us tonight who have come to perform in Jonesboro so much, they are starting to feel like our neighbors. Well, they're just from Abington, one of our neighboring towns, so it puts them in the vicinity for sure. We're talking about Virginia West, and we're so happy to have them back on the show to kick off our 12th season. 12 years, yes. Can you believe it? And it couldn't happen without you, our audience. It could not. And it also couldn't have happened without our wonderful sponsors. We'd like to thank the Wild Women of Jonesboro. Yeah. And we'd also like to thank the Tennessee Arts Commission. The thanks just keep going, especially to Sandy and Gary Degner. Mm -hmm. Right here, out in front. Yes. And also to a new sponsor, First Horizon Bank. And thank you so much for helping us do what we love and also helping to preserve and present the wonderful stories of our place. We don't just collect them and leave them collecting dust on a shelf. We pull them out and show them off here. So you certainly are good neighbors who help us do this. I see what you're trying to do there, Jules. Mm, I was hoping you would. And also some folks we're especially grateful for, and they're members of the Incredible Writers Group that's emerged here at the McKinney Center. And up first is a story of neighbors that comes from our favorite trivia host and friend and new neighbor, Ryan Buds, in a piece he likes to call Red Light, Green Light. I stand in front of the lit window, my face baked in emerald. But he doesn't notice me. I rap on the pane, which startles him briefly, but he's elated to see uh, my familiar face. In under a minute, I'm sitting at his bar, and he's rattling off drink options, and I'm already glad I came down to visit on a Saturday night. Howard, or Mr. Howard, to all the kids in the neighborhood, is a gem of a human who greets you with a permanent smile. He also happens to have a working traffic light in the bay window of his basement. The first time I met him, he explained it to me very matter-of-factly. Green means bar's open. Yellow means last call. Red means bars closed. Now, what can I pour ya? I, I take a sip from his famous rum punch. It's always freshly mixed in a plastic jug in his fridge. <laughs> it was the first local beverage I tasted when my family and I moved to East Tennessee almost two years back. He was set up at an annual crawfish boil behind a homemade tiki bar and went through 18 gallons of his tropical concoction, which satisfied all the drinking-aged HOA residents. Yellow light! I don't have much time to visit, maybe 45 minutes, but this field trip to another man cave is always a delight. 
After the first drink, I'm touring Howard's workshop filled with tools, sawdust, and about four, four works in progress tiki bars. He explains how he cuts down the bamboo for each piece by piece along a section of the Nolichucky River, splits them and sands them one at a time for the optimal tiki style. Number 37 is just about done. He points to a festive setup complete with wine glass holders and disco light to illuminate the straw roof. He heads back to his bar and I notice an oversized check like you'd get if you'd won the lottery. Only this one shows a donation to a local charity from Mr. Howard. The tiki bars usually go to auction to rack up thousands of dollars for much needed missions around town. I look at my reflection within the cursive font of the Budweiser sign and gosh, I hope I'll be that capable at 86. Red light. The bar is closed, but he offers me another drink and I go with light beer this time as I still have to tuck the kids into bed. When he closes the fridge, he taps his wife's obituary taped to the front and he cracks the lager and hands it to me. I ask him about the activities they used to do together and he quickly produces a framed picture of her and her bowling team in the early 60s. Everyone lined up in mustard yellow shirts with maroon collars. We bowled together for years until she started beating me. Then I got sour. Um, we found other things to do together, though. <laughs> Less competitive. He places a frame on his bar, just like she's joining us for a drink. Hey, look at all those matchbooks. Are, are these yours in the table? From everywhere we've ever been. Twiggies in Harlan, Kentucky. Annabelle's Market Stop in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Ha, Jasperilla's in Lincoln, Nebraska. He kept naming more of his favorites, and I saw about 300 others that faded slowly together under the thick coating of poured resin. Staring at the bar is like looking into a fire-starting quilt of their adventures. It, it's time to go now. I stretch up from my stool and give Howard a hearty handshake, and he tries to offer me a hefty list of other drink options. I decline them all with a laugh and tell him about the kid's bedtime. He walks over the traffic light and looks out into the darkness for any more patrons and then clicks at crimson. Over his shoulder, I can see my house on the hill. The bedroom lights of both my kids are still shining, and I can see them having some sort of dance-off with my wife in my daughter's room. Hundreds of feet away, it's, it's like watching a drive-in movie from the one town over. Howard stares at his favorite bowler knowing we won't have anyone to go home to this evening. And I realize how lucky I am. He smiles at me with that same wide grin and, oh, what the heck, I'll have one more. <laughs> Cheers, my friend. Cheers. Sometimes it's the little things that spark a friendship or a kindred spirit. A shared experience. And sometimes that spark of friendship becomes even more, like in our next story. Yes? Oh, you're the new girl from the family next door. Yes, I'm Catherine. My brothers and sisters are over there with the baseball gloves. Can Bruce come out and play? Well, he's got to finish his homework first, and then he... Hey, Bruce, put a move on it. We're all waiting on you to start the game. We need you to make the sides even. Hang on, I'm almost done. Well, hurry up. I'm coming. What about your homework? I'll finish later. 
As soon as Catherine and her family moved in, this scenario repeated day after day. Bruce rushed through his homework, motivated more than ever to get out and play. Catherine, her sister, and their five brothers doubled the size of the neighborhood playgroup. There were rowdy games of baseball, touch football, stickball, bicycle races around the block in the summer, and sledding in the winter. The whole group of them started growing up together, and they were pretty inseparable, especially two of them, Bruce and Catherine. Hey, Catherine, I'm getting bar mitzvahed. Mom and Dad said I could invite a few friends. Want to come? Sure, I like parties. Bruce only invited a few friends, and Catherine was the only girl. Someone with a camera persuaded Catherine to sit on Bruce's lap and talked Bruce into kissing her on the cheek. The moment was captured on film. Not long after, Catherine's family moved away, and that was in 1963, so there was no Facebook to keep in touch, not even MySpace. Twenty or so years later, Catherine moved back into town, but their childhood friendship didn't exactly pick up where it left off. Hey, Bruce, guess who I ran into? Guessing games. David, really, how long have you been my friend? You know I don't like to play 20 questions. Okay, play it your way, but you'll be missing out. All right, I give up. Who was it? She lived right next door to you. She? You mean Denise? No, her family who moved in after them. Uh, is it Catherine? You betcha. She's working at the deli, and boy, did she grow up cute. If I weren't a happily married man, I'd be asking her out myself. Uh, oh, really? I, I may have to, to go see her myself. Bruce had given up on his career in advertising in favor of owning a landscaping business. Working in the city offered a lot, but he missed home and he missed the people he called friends. The next day, covered in the evidence of a hard morning's gardening, he walked into the deli. He hadn't bothered to even wash the dirt from his hands before trying to greet her. Little Catherine, the tomboy who played stickball, might have appreciated it, but grown-up Catherine, who ran a deli, did not. The ponytailed little girl had grown up into a lovely woman with fluffy blonde hair and soft brown eyes and a no-nonsense demeanor. Well, you have. I hope a date with you. <laughs> Seriously? What'll you have? I've got customers lined up behind you. Hey, don't you recognize me? Think. Greenfield Lane. Hmm. Well, well, I didn't for a minute. Oh, hi, Bruce. Well, you have, uh, besides a shower. <laughs> like I said, a date with you. Sorry, nope, 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 next. This was repeated for several days with similar results. Finally, Bruce asked himself the question he asked everyone else. So how's that working for you? And realized he needed a new strategy. Hey, David. Do you have Catherine's phone number? Or know anyone who might have it? So, I guess you've been to the deli. Won't she give you the time of day? Well, I've only seen her there at lunchtime when she's got customers stacked up like cordwood and after I've been hauling cordwood myself. Or maybe some manure. Oh, I'm sure that makes a great impression. 
By the way, you're smelling a little ripe today, too. Well, I guess I get used to the smell. I forgot not everyone loves the smell of a really good compost. My roses seem to love it. Roses? Well, you don't smell like roses right now, buddy. I know, I know. Hey, anyways, can you give me your number? I'm going to clean up and ask her out properly if I could only get her number. Well, my buddy Jack has it. He's friends with her brother. I'll call him. Hey, Jack, this is David. My friend Bruce wants to call Catherine. They're old friends from way back. Can you have her number? Um, oh, okay, got it. Hey, what did he say? He said, sure, he'll give you her number. You and Charlie Manson. <laughs> oh, boy, really? He won't give it to me? Well, actually, he said if you go over there, he'll dial the number and let you talk to her if she answers. She gets off work at 5, meet him over there. But seriously, take a shower first. She'll probably smell you over the phone. Bruce took David's advice and got all cleaned up and headed over to Jack's house, who would place the call. Hi, Catherine. This is Bruce. Hmm. So, so now you're phoning in your lunch order? How'd you get my number anyway? Well, I've got my connections, but no, this isn't a lunch order at all. Look, I know you thought I was kidding this week, but really... I'd really like to go out with you. I even took a shower. Mm -hmm. I put on a clean new shirt and a nice vest. I want to do this right. May I take you to dinner and a movie? How about it? Come on. Well, mm, since you're behaving like a grown-up now instead of that 13-year-old Bruce that I used to know, uh, yes, Bruce, I I'd really like that. I just needed to know that you'd finally grown up. When grown-up Bruce presented himself to grown-up Catherine, a new, stronger friendship began to bloom. Bruce once again found himself eagerly headed out the door to meet Catherine, but instead of a meet-up for a stickball game, it was a picnic lunch, or a dinner out, or even a nice walk through the old neighborhood. In a short time, he asked her to marry him, and, to, and she said yes, this time right away. As they were preparing for their wedding, they searched through old photos and discovered the long-forgotten picture taken a couple of decades previously. There was Catherine, sitting on Bruce's knee, receiving a kiss on the cheek. Clearly, this was kiss-met. What a sweet story and true from Lori Herlick. And I think it's a privilege to live in a neighborhood where you know your next door neighbor. I worked in Chicago for several years and I met one neighbor in the condo that was above me, but I don't think I ever met any of the people who lived in the building next door. Sometimes proximity doesn't create good neighbors, but it's so wonderful when it does. Up next, we've got a story about a little girl and a special neighbor she knew when she was a child. I don't remember the face of my neighbor, but I do remember his hands, all nine and a half fingers. 
Hey, come here, Lizzie. Come sit with me and help me with this puzzle. I've also got your favorite. Ooh, candy. Of course there's candy. Would you like butterscotch or caramel? I like all candy. Well, then you should have one of each. How come your candy bowl is always full, um, even when I eat and eat the candy? It's magic. <laughs> sure enough, I don't know. I, I don't fill it up, and I know Ms. Coker doesn't fill it up, and so it must be magic. Now, come help me. See, the goal is to get the numbers here all in order. Can you slide this tile here over here just like that? Now, what number comes next? Six. All right. So let's move this tile over here and this tile. What happened to your finger? My finger? What do you mean? Your finger, there, the littlest one. What's wrong with it? You only have part of it. <laughs> well, don't you remember? No. You don't remember what happened the last time you were here? You pulled my finger and it popped right off. No, I didn't. Oh, that's right. You took it when I wasn't looking. That must be it. Here, uh, let's slide these tiles next and look here. We finished it. All the tiles are in order, all ten. There's only nine tiles. Oh, oh you're right, you're right. There are ten spaces, but only nine tiles. Just like your fingers. <laughs> well, I suppose so. But nine's better than none, now isn't it? How about another caramel? And so it went. Every time my mom and I walked next door. Oh, it may not always have been a slide puzzle. It may have been the crosswords or cards but there was always Werther's butterscotch and caramels. And every visit, Mr. Coker reminded me of how I stole his finger. A few decades later, after we were no longer neighbors, a letter of his passing came in the mail. And I asked my mother, what really happened to his finger? I shuddered and understood why he pretended with me for all those years. He used to lay the train tracks, and one day there was an accident. He lost part of a finger, but he was lucky he didn't lose his whole arm. When the doctor said everything right again, he could sort of use his arm, but not like he used to. That's why he retired early and had time to do puzzles with me on the porch and fill an endless bowl of Werther's candy. He laughed with me, cared about me, and he did his best to shield me from the harder things of this world. He was 60 years older than me, but that didn't matter. He always welcomed my visit. We played together, talked together, cared about each other. Isn't that what friends do? It sure is. That's what good friends do.
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Storytown Radio Show, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio hour on WETS 89.5 FM out of Johnson City, Tennessee. but I am so happy to have our musical guest tonight, Virginia West. And they have been here for about four or five times, is that correct, guys? About four times with us here on the program. So what we're going to do is let them tell you a little, about the, a little bit about themselves and where they're from, and then please, they're going to play us some music, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Such a pleasure to be here at Storytown once more. As soon as Tony gets tuned up, we'll kick off his first tune. We come all the way from Bristol to hang out with you. And there's no place else we'd rather be on a frigid, wintry Monday night than sharing some good stories with you fine folks. So thank you for having us. Thank you for Jules and Michelle uh, for hosting such a wonderful event. We're going to play you a, a little song. Hope you enjoy
Thank you all. I can always count on them to have a song that touches my heart. <laughs> oh, that was great. And don't go too far because we want to hear from you again a little bit later in the show. We sure do. That's totally right. Tonight's show is about good neighbors and friends. And our good friend Leon was the first co-host of our program when we began so many years ago. He and his wife, Pam, they were such good friends to us and to this whole community, but we even stayed with them when we came here looking for our new home. And he gave us really good advice like, don't go there, there's too much traffic there, or that's not close enough to the action there. Um, they became our family away from home, and we spent many holidays sitting at their table. And we spent that last New Year's at their home when, when Leon gave the blessing through tears for the new year, probably knowing that he wouldn't see the end of that year. And he left us that Easter day, but he didn't leave us alone. His compassion and love for life was passed on through everybody who knew him and his stories, a, a real treasure trove of stories, which he asked us to keep telling stories about his neighbors. The last thing Leon ever said to me was, keep the radio show going. So tonight in this episode dedicated to good neighbors, we share with you the stories of Leon's neighbors growing up in Boone's Creek along Route 5 in Jonesboro. Like all the communities surrounding Jonesboro, the little section where I was born, raised, and still live depended on the town as much as the town depended on us. We were a team the town, and the rural community. We country folk were mostly farmers. The Great Depression had an impact on farms and many were lost to foreclosure and bought up by the few who had money. The farmhouses vacated by the original owners were lent to sharecroppers who desperately sought to scratch out a living. The hard work throughout the week was often rewarded by a Saturday trip to town. Going to town was an earned ritual, one that was looked forward to all week long. In 1933, when Mom was a little girl, two of her closest neighbors were a widow, Miss Miney, and her daughter, Rose. They were victims of the times, but supported by good neighbors and relatives. And when Rose was nine years old, she had never been to town. Uncle Will noticed the situation and hollered over one Saturday morning to Miss Miney, get Rose cleaned up, I'm taking her to town. Wow, can you imagine the emotions that must have been running through that little girl who had heard of town and even seen pictures but had never been. The five-mile ride in a Model A must have seemed like a trip across the continent to someone who had never been that far from home. The eyes of Uncle Will, Aunt Mary, and Miss Miney must have been focused on the eyes of Rose as she approached downtown Jonesboro. Three church steeples and a courthouse and the hustle and bustle of people scurrying to take advantage of the happenings of the town. She had never seen that many people before at one time. But it was the buildings, the big, wide, and tall buildings all in a row and made of brick that caught her eye. 
How could people build something so magnificent? How lucky could a little girl be to visit a place so glorious? The little girl grew and worked for many years in Johnson City, but she never forgot her first time in town, and it was Jonesboro. Mom said that Mr. Coggins worked on the Carter Place during the Depression. It was the early 1930s. He had a large family and enough food, but no money. He set up a still in the big woods. That was Uncle Paul's woods back behind our woods. Mom would see Mr. Coggins driving his wagon back through the field behind the barn. A few minutes later, she would smell wood smoke. Granddad told her and Granny not to walk back to Beulah's through the woods because there was a pack of wild dogs back there and they might bite them. <laughs> they knew Granddad didn't want them walking up on Mr. Coggins when he was making moonshine. <laughs> My mom said that she was one of the few people that would remember. It happened in the late 20s. She was born in 1920, so she thinks it happened about 1928. Anyway, Grandma, Granny was upset because the prisoners were working at the rock quarry. Beside Marvin's Chapel Methodist Church, less than a mile from where they were living, there was a rock quarry. When we were small, Hobie uh, Beard got, put up a croquet court, croquet court <laughs> there. Joe Beard has a trailer there now. In 1928, it was a rock bluff. Prisoners would, were sent there to mine the rocks with hand drills and sledgehammers to the county roads. The prisoners were normally held in the, the calaboose in Duncan's Meadow, the flatland there in Jonesboro between the Red Light and the Baptist Church. That's where Andrew Jackson had a duel. Anyway, the prisoners were transported from there to the rock quarry. It was just about five miles they brought two cages. Mom said they looked like cages you'd put wild animals in, like a circus cage. All the prisoners wore black and white striped pants and shirt. They set up a place to do laundry and boil the clothes in a kettle. They got fresh water from the spring. One cage was for the regular prisoners, and one cage was for prisoners that wore balls and chains. Mom wondered what you had to do to get sentenced to a ball and chain. Well, they would hang you behind the courthouse for stealing horses or killing somebody or something. Granny didn't want Granddad to go outside to work. She begged him not to work outside while the prisoners were there. He wasn't a bit scared, but Granny was all so upset that she cried. I guess Mom was pretty worried for an eight-year-old girl to still remember it when she is now 89. Granddad told Granny that they wouldn't be running down the, they would be running down the creek to get away, not to their house to stay. He probably knew most of them anyway. <laughs> Mom, Mom would go to Uncle Will's and Aunt Mary's and she could see a guard with a loaded gun stand and watch. The Andersons were paid to cook for the prisoners. 
Mom and said she figured the prisoners slept in their cage unless it was raining. And then maybe they slept in a barn there beside the creek. Uncle Bob Kefauver owned the, the barn back then. The prisoners would drill the rock seams with hand drills and then load them with dynamite. They would shoot the rock, and when the dust cleared, they would load it into huge trucks with a steam shovel to take them to the rock crusher. The rocks were crushed to about the size of a baseball, and that was used on the roads. The prisoners helped with that, too. It didn't take long for ruts to form in the road. Prisoners did a lot of maintenance. They were never worried about a road crew, but the thought of a group of prisoners living within a mile, and some of them with balls and chains, was really disconcerting. They finished mining the rock quarry in the summer of 1928, and the prisoners didn't come back to stay anymore. That put Granny at ease. I can still remember the chain gang in black and white stripes working the roads in the mid-50s. Mom said Junior Beard might remember the chain gang in the rock quarry. I told her I would ask him in the next time I saw him. Well, Junior died a couple of weeks later before I got around to asking him. Sometimes it pays to go ahead and ask while it's fresh on your mind. <laughs> TNT Billiards was going strong in the 1960s. My dad started taking me there in the late 50s, and there was a snooker table, three regular pool tables, and a table set up to play Keno. A bar was at the front uh, left corner of the room. There was about 10 bar stools. A uh, mirror was on the wall behind the bar, so those sitting at the bar could look at the mirror and see what was going on behind them. Three pinball machines sat between in the bar and the door, and on the right side of the door, as you walked in, was a church pew looking out the window toward the street so everybody could keep an eye on what's going on at the courthouse. Being introduced to the pool room by my dad, who was known by all the regular patrons, I was privy to some of the activities that were kept secret to the not-so-regular patrons of the establishment. When I started to drive, I would go to T&T Billiards by myself and shoot pool and watch the activities. In the evenings and on Saturday afternoons, a group of regulars would gather. There would be 20 people lining the bar, 10 on bar stools and 10 standing behind and between. There was no alcohol served at the bar. The county was dry. Uh, that was reserved for the back room where the cards were played. <laughs> Porch, the bartender would serve Coke and Pepsi products. There would be just four or five guys at the bar drinking pop. Porch would then pull out a tip board. Bill, the person who racked the balls, would then become the spotter and take his place on the church pew in the corner and look out at the street. Porch would pass the tip board around down the row of men. It cost 10 cents for a tip, 10 per row, and 21 rows. It cost $21 to sell the board, and lucky winner got $20. When a winner was paid, all the tips would go into a grocery bag, and that was hidden behind the counter. If a stranger or anyone from the local judicial or law enforcement community would walk in, Bill would signal, and the tip board evidence would be hidden. A stranger would literally walk in. There would be 20 people standing at a 10-seat bar with just four Cokes on the counter. I might be the only one still playing pool. 
Ted, the owner of the bar, bought a new 22 rifle into the pool room one evening. He had mounted a scope and set the sights that day. He bragged how sweet a shooting gun it was. Some argument broke out about how good a shot Ted was. A train went by, enough sound to muffle the sound of the shot, especially a 22 shot. We walked out on the steps, and no one being in sight, Ted leaned that rifle on a handrail and shot two pigeons off the roof of the courthouse. <laughs> then, every time the clock chimed or a train went by, he would shoot pigeons off the courthouse roof. Later that evening, a trustee from the jailhouse, which is on the lower floors of the courthouse, came in and we asked him what was going on at the jail. He said there was a drunk came in saying that he was seeing pigeons falling off the roof. <laughs> we confirmed his notion. That guy must have really been drunk. <laughs> Route 5 Jonesboro was in the path of the Civil War. The old stage road ran between Abingdon and Jonesboro and was the path for troops from both sides. When Aunt Mary was a little girl, she lived on Old Stage Road at Bugaboo Springs. Imagine a little girl hearing that troops were coming, not knowing whether they would be hostile or friendly. All able-bodied men were at war, one side or the other. The adults who remained would cook up a mess of greens and cornbread bread, and wait for the troops while the children went to their well-chosen hiding places in the woods or in the fields. When the signal was given that the troops had left and it was safe to come home, the children would return. One time, Aunt Mary found that the soldiers, even after they were fed, had ransacked the house, bent their eating utensils so they wouldn't be fit for the opposing soldiers, and even tore pages out of the family Bible and threw them under the porch. How mean could someone be to do something like that? Mary, being the youngest, was tasked to crawl under the porch to retrieve the missing pages. Those pages still held the hope that would sustain them through their times of need. Cries from those who mourned fallen soldiers and warriors have echoed in the hollers that surround Jonesboro since the days of the Cherokee. Unmarked graves dot the hillsides with no records to prove their existence except the DNA in us who remain. Thanks, Karen. And thank you, Leon, for your stories and your memories. They're so important. You know, we, we teach a class here at the McKinney Center in story collecting each spring and fall. And if you want to collect your own family or neighbor stories like these, we'd love to have you join our Storytown Brigade. There's always more stories to hear just like this. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio hour on WETS-FM. back with more stories to tell and more wonderful songs to sing to my heart. <laughs> so let's call up Virginia West for again for some great music. Well, thank you. So the wonderful thing about Good Neighbors 
at least kind of growing up where I did, is if you ever need anything, they just tell you, come on up to the house. You need some sugar, come on up to the house. You need somebody to talk to, come on up to the house. If you need to complain, stay home. <laughs> <laughs> we think this little song sums it up pretty good. It's old Tom Waits tune, so we hope you like it. Well, the moon is broken and the sky is cracked. Come on up to the house. The only thing you see is that what you lack. You gotta come on up to the house. All of your crying won't do you no good. You gotta come on up to the house. Come down off the cross. We could use the wood. You gotta come on up to the house. Come on up to the house. To the house, the world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. You gotta come on up to the house. There's no light in the tunnel, no irons in the fire. You gotta come on up to the house. And your singing lead soprano in a junk man's choir. You gotta come on up to the house. Does life seem Thank you, folks.
Now, before you guys leave the stage, tell us what you've been up to and where we can see you next. Absolutely. So, we have been up to a whole lot of sleeping and um, putting fire in that wood stove, keeping warm. <laughs> but where you can see us next on February 12th, we'll be over at the Abingdon Winery, and we're going to do a Valentine's show. So, all you sweethearts, come on out. And we're also going to be back up this way on February 18th for our neighbors here over at the Boone's Creek Opry. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah. So thank you all. Yeah. Give it up one more time for Virginia West. This is why we keep asking them back. They're fabulous. And now back to some more good neighbors. Now the next story is probably, well, this... There's two stories coming up next that are really, really powerful. And one of them, I think, is one of my very favorite stories about how neighbors can go through really difficult times and still be neighbors. Um, really powerful story. And it's from the past, but it happened right here along Main Street. And who better to tell it than Anja Fellers Mason from the Heritage Alliance in this very special segment of... Ask the Historian. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's fun to have a catchphrase. <laughs> Jonesboro has always been a neighborly town. Not to say we haven't had our disagreements through history, but we usually come back together in the end. Prior to the Civil War, two Jew Jewish-German immigrants made their way to Jonesboro. Herman Cohn and Jacob Adler had come to America with very little. Unfortunately, they'd met with discrimination in Virginia due to their religion. They packed a small cart with all their worldly possessions and sought a better future in Tennessee. The town of Jonesboro welcomed them, and the merchants established a popular shop on West Main Street. They sold all kinds of items, including ready-to-wear clothing. Now, Herman and Jacob raised their families here before moving to Baltimore, where they continued to prosper. They sent money back to the town in 1873 to help with the aftermath of the cholera epidemic. Now, Herman's son Moses got involved in the textile industry and established factories throughout the South, especially in North Carolina. Drive around the Asheville and Greensboro areas today, and you'll see the Cone family name on a lot of buildings. Herman's daughters, Clara Bale and Etta, traveled the world together collecting art. Their private collection helped to establish the art wing at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And in the 1980s, when the town of Jonesboro was working to build its new town hall and visitor center, the Cone family sent money back to help with those projects. They wanted to help the town that had welcomed their ancestors all those years ago. That's downright neighborly. Well, indeed it is. But my favorite story about neighbors in Jonesboro has to do with the Mason and Dilworth families. The two families had been friends for years. They even shared a duplex for a time on West Main Street. But their friendship was put to the ultimate test when they found themselves on opposite sides during the Civil War. Oh, my goodness. I wonder what that was like. Ugh, I wonder that myself. Uh, the duplex they shared is long gone now, but I like to imagine what that home was like at that moment in history. I see a parlor room or a great room with two women, Charlotte Dilworth and Angelina Mason, quilting. 
two women quilting as they wait for news that will change their worlds forever. I'm sorry, dear. Did you say something? What? I thought you said something. I apologize. Quite, quite all right. Must have been a noise from the attic. It's so drafty up there, all that open space. I, I hadn't noticed. Sometimes a squirrel gets in and runs around. Yes. I have asked my James to close the holes, but... Well, uh, squirrels are clever. Oh, persistent. Yes. Um, does this look like a tulip? Pardon? Um, does, does this look like a tulip? Oh, oh, yes. Well, uh, is the color right? The orange looks lovely. It's pink. Oh. Well, rose pink, but it looks... Oh, of, of course it's pink. It's a beautiful shade. Orange. Well, the lighting in this room, it, it falls in such odd angles. Lanterns do so little to help. You failed to mention all these flaws when you asked us to move in. I'm joking. You know me and my awful jokes. No, it was funny. Not very. I like your jokes. I've always liked your jokes. I appreciate the praise. The farmer's almanac says we'll have rain. Does it? Oh, oh yes, it predicts a very rainy summer season. Interesting. Should be good for the garden, unless we get too much. Yes. Let us pause in life's pleasures and count its many tears while we all sup sorrow with the poor. There's a song that will linger forever in our ears. Oh, hard times come again no more. Tis the song, the sigh of the weary. Hard times, hard times, come again no more. Many days you have lingered around my cabin door. Oh, hard times, come again no more. It's secession! We've seceded! Charles! Where did you hear this? It's all over the streets! And you Words just come from Nashville! And you're sure? Certain as the day is long! Oh my! I wonder, when Thomas Nelson came to speak about the Union, and he was so ill-received, well, I wondered then. But I didn't think it actually happened. Oh, I hoped. Well, we all did. It's the right thing to do. A president should not be a tyrant. I know. He can't just tear apart the Constitution and use it however it suits him. Yes, yes. Oh, oh, uh, Mrs. Mason. Charles? I, uh, I, I should go. Go where? Uh, I'll, I'll listen on the street, but I'll be home by dinner, I, I promise. I'll find Father. He's got to know. Oh, be careful. I should leave. Leave? Why? But we can be out by week's end. Uh, no. Well, two weeks at the longest. Oh, Angelina, no. You can't have us living here. Well, why not? We are the enemy. Oh, no. No, they're the enemy. 
Lincoln and his men, they're... We are they, Charlotte. No. Well, what now? Our sons take up arms against one another? Uh, no. We spy on each other? No. We turn each other in? Stop. How does this work? I, I don't know. I'm not sure it can work. Angelina, you have young children. You're safe here. James and Charles and I will keep you safe. But what if Charles goes off to war? What if he's drafted? What if my James goes off to fight? Will they face each other on the battlefield? Oh, please, just wait. This is all happening so fast. I was worried this might happen. But then I told myself I was being foolish. It would never come to war. But now, up is down and the world... It's not the same as it was a moment ago. I liked that moment better. Oh, Angelina. Please, Charlotte, don't preach to me. Not about this. This is your home, as much as it is ours. And we won't run you out. You say that today, but what of a month, a year, oh, two years? It can't last two years. I pray that you're right. But that does nothing to change now. Well, I don't have a magic glass or ball that helps me see the future. We may not want to see it. Tis the song, the sigh of the weary. Hard times, hard times, come again no more. Of course, the war did last more than a year. The Masons and the Dilworths continued to live together, though, and they even found a way to help each other out as the Confederate and then Union soldiers came through. They used their shared attic space and moved their belongings back and forth, depending on which army was in town. This way, they assured neither family had their possessions confiscated. And I imagine what that was like, too, moving all of that stuff to the attic over and over again. Charlotte, did you line this thing with lead? <laughs> Almost. It's the family silver and the good china some of James's books, and, of course, his recipes. I know what the man reads. No one's going to want his books. <laughs> He's so worried someone will steal his prescriptions and learn his secrets. Well, that's one way to win the war, by poisoning. Uh, it was a poor joke. I apologize. Well, at least we can still joke. That's something. Well, what next? Well, there's three sewing machines downstairs. No. And two more on our side of the attic. No, there's no room. We must make room. I lugged half of Archibald's blacksmith shop across the yard and up two flights of stairs when he was so sure those traitorous rebels were going to take everything he had. And did they? Armies need smithing tools, Charlotte. No army is going to transport five sewing machines. <laughs> They're singers. They're the new models. <laughs> Five sewing machines. They're made of iron. It can be melted down. We'll give some of them away to other families. No. James says he needs to hold on to them. Sales will resume when the war is over. I am not moving five unwanted sewing machines to a space that won't fit. Tell James We are not giving anything to those doodles who'd have Lincoln for king. I'm sorry, we're not. I never questioned what you were hiding from the Confederate soldiers, Angelina. 
or why. I just helped you move your things to our side of the attic. Well, you questioned, not so much in words, but in your eyes and your body. I don't know how to do this. None of us do. And who would have thought the war would last this long? I worry all the time for my son, for your son. Me too. I worry. What if we lose? What happens to us? And then I worry, what if we win? What happens to you? Well, then the Masons move in with the Dilworths permanently. But you have to get rid of some sewing machines. <laughs> <laughs> but not even the Union Army wants them. <laughs> oh, I'm so tired. I know. We all are. This isn't the reason we invited y'all to move in. I hope you know that. The thought had crossed my mind. Don't give me that look. Of course I know that. It was nice for a moment, wasn't it? Alternating dinners, the children entertaining. Charles at the piano, filling the room with music. An oration by James. He'll be a fine minister one day. <laughs> I know. And young Edgar is so sweet. He copies everything James does. Says he wants to be a minister, too. Two in one family. Gracious. Yes. But I've always loved the way Charles speaks, even when he's talking. It's, it's like he's singing. Don't tell my boys this, but I want him to preach at my funeral. He'd be honored to, but pray it is a long time off. For all of us. And pray our families can get through this. Every day. And our friendship is not another thing lost to the war. Come on, there's five sewing machines to move. But there's always room. Don't we have children? Well, let's go find some of our children. Yeah, situations like these are why we had them, right? Absolutely. Oh, Charles. James. And years later, after the war was over, when Angelina Mason passed away in 1909, Charles Dilworth did preach at her funeral. The Masons and the Dilworths were good neighbors until the very end. I love that story, and, and to me, it's, it's an incredible example of how we can still remain neighbors even when we don't agree with each other and even in the most difficult times. And I do have my Aunt Marion's uh, Singer sewing machine, so those things are heavy. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to thank you all, our neighbors, for caring about these stories and sharing them with us because there is such wisdom in all of your stories. And thank you for joining us on this special evening. And thanks to all of our sponsors. And now we invite you all to join us to celebrate our 12th season, enjoy refreshments, chat with the crew. Let's celebrate ourselves and our stories. Good night, everybody. <laughs>